So, um, so just before we went on the air, we were kind of talking a little bit about the um, uh, AirPods reset. So apparently, sometimes AirPods don't pair to each other very well, or they're not—they're you know having some weird connecting issues, or you know they're just not behaving the way you think they should. You can do a sort of forced reset with them. Um, it's not, it's not like they have a reset button. Like, you know, on some devices you press and hold a button and that forces a reset. Um, although with the AirPods pro, you know, they have like, uh, that touch sensor on, on the device itself. I wonder if you, um, uh, you know, held that long enough, if it would maybe do something, but, uh, essentially what they say is you want to go into your Bluetooth settings and, uh, Excuse me. Scroll down to AirPods and then select a device and say choose the device and you or forget the device and uh, and so you remove it from your Bluetooth settings so it's no longer attached to your to your phone or uh, iPad or whatever it is that it you've got it attaching to and then you put them back in the charging case and you hold down the button on the case uh, for about fifteen seconds. And they said that the light should turn amber and blink three times. Then you let go of it, and the light will turn white, indicating that your AirPods have been reset and they're ready to repair. So, um, you know, and anybody who's dealt with Bluetooth stuff, I think, has at least once or twice had that issue where it's like it's attached, but it's not quite working right. Something's not, you know, working the way it should be. And so this is probably not a bad way to deal with any, um, uh, you know, Bluetooth type of issue is you know, remove, first, remove it from your device. First thing, I, first thing I want to say, Todd, is you missed one part of this, this step. It says when you uh, uh, put your uh, devices in the case, it says uh, keep the lid open Hold while up. during that 15 seconds. So if you won't get those. Oh, while keeping the lid open. Okay, got you. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I did miss that. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, being a person with hearing aids that use Bluetooth uh, in the in my normal mode, uh, mm-hmm. I I can't I can't imagine anybody calling Bluetooth headphones or AirPods uh, a problem. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you're living in Bluetooth hell because uh, yeah. you know I've never been a fan of Bluetooth. I think Bluetooth is is a you know it's it's a a barely acceptable standard that seems to sort of work some of the time. And, and so I don't like it. I've got, you know, and I've got a variety of Bluetooth devices and speakers and things. And, and, and generally they, okay, they generally they work okay. And that's about as, as, you know, much praise as I'm going to, uh, to heap on anything Bluetooth is generally it works okay. Um, but we've talked about on here that the, the, our supposition based on just evidence that we're hearing and seeing and understanding the spec that Apple is probably going to move away from Bluetooth. I suspect that their AirPods, future AirPods and devices will have Bluetooth in them in order to maintain compatibility with older things. Um, but they may skip it and just say, hey, it's only available on you know this these devices and the ones going forward from there. And they're going to switch to using the ultra-wideband for this stuff because it has a lot broader frequency band, and they'll be able to get much higher fidelity out of their devices by doing that. Yeah, so. I think that's what that's what the AirPods Pro Two that's uh, supposed to be upcoming, uh, maybe yeah. in March or April, yeah. uh, will probably have. And if if that's the case, then you have to have a uh, iPhone 11 or 
newer in order to work with that, uh, or that because that's when they first used the ultra wide band in an um, in a uh, phone. Yeah, they're 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 just trying to get me to upgrade my phone. I know. So. Well, you know, they're just simply saying, hey, you know, technology moves forward. We got cool stuff. And so, you know, you want the cool stuff. You got to have the the new, the new hotness, right? Yep. So, you know, I've been been thinking about it, but it's awfully expensive upgrade. mm -hmm. It is. It's a very expensive upgrade. And right now there's no reason to, to do anything with it, right? Um, that doesn't mean that there won't be at some point. And if this comes to pass, as we're guessing that it is, then then it's something at least to to, to think about. You say, okay, well, 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 it's it's a combination of small things, exactly, uh, which is what know, it usually is. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's and, and so when you get tired of be, not having this or that, or you think that would some particular feature might be really useful. For you know, for you, why then you're more tempted to spend the money. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, you know, I was just curious. I'm looking right now to see if, um, if the, uh, like I have a fourth generation iPad air. So it's the most recent iPad air. Now they're rumored to be updating that shortly as well. I don't see a, um, a the U1 chip in this, so I don't know that that device has it. So it wouldn't. Uh, so you know they maybe have it in their um, in their. Uh... Well, my my guess is that once they announce it, there will be lists of compatible devices. Oh sure, sure. Quickly. So uh, so as to convince people that they either need to upgrade or forget about this feature, you know. Right, right. Well, that's why I said that I, I'm guessing that if they come out with it, it's going to have both the uh, the U1 chip in it or, or whatever ultra-wideband chip they, they're going to put into this thing that will make the new headphones work. But they'll probably still have Bluetooth so that it can still work with the older devices. It just I, won't support I'm, the higher quality sound. Yeah, I think I think you're right. They'll have to phase it out gradually. Yeah. You know, although I'm sitting here looking, I don't see, uh, let's see, even if the... the the like the most recently reduced iPad Mini. I don't see the U1 chip in that either. Um, but maybe I'm maybe they're just not listing. I, I'm trying to see where it would be put. You know, in uh, now I use a an app called uh, Mac Tracker, which gives you all the specs from every Apple device ever made. And so um, it's not that hard to find on uh, on like the phones. But I don't see it. Ah, okay. Ultra wide, uh, twelve megapixel ultra wide true depth. No, wait a minute. That's the that's the cameras, the ultra wide camera, so that they can do the um, the pan and scan on things. So I yeah, like see, even the the MacBook or the uh, iPad Pros, the most recent ones with the M1 chips in them. I don't see where it says that they have the U1 chip in it, whereas uh-huh. the um, well, the phone, you know, not, it's... Th- th- this whole concept is just pieced together from bits of information. So until Apple makes it true, known, true. And that's uh, what we um, yeah, th- that's what one of the things that we have said 
you know, repeatedly with when we talk about rumors is, you know, there's all kinds of rumors out there as to what it's, you know, we're, we're guessing about it. Like, I can go back real quickly and easily, and there's a, a line item identifying ultra-wideband chip for spatial awareness in the iPad, iPhone 11 Pro. Um, and is it in the and it's in the iPhone 11? So it's so that was the mm-hmm. series that they started putting them in. Um, but they're not. It's uh, from what I can see, they're not putting it in any of the iPads yet. And so for you know, and I guess that's not you know absolutely required, but it just you would think that that would be something that they would um, that they would put in there, mm-hmm. you know, if that was really going to be something they were going to switch to is they'd want it to be everywhere. But maybe they're going to say that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, most people probably listen to their music on their phone, not on their iPads anyway. Most of it, most of the time. Yeah. I mean, I know I do, but sometimes I listen on my iPad as well. So, um, you would think that they would start putting it in the iPads as well, you know, to right. Help, to help with find my wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. So oh. I've used that, by the way. I don't know if you have used the Find My to go find your device. And the uh, oh, yeah. the U1 chip really does help significantly in that respect. I mean, Well, that homes in much more accurately. Yes. More precision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got um, some of the um, uh, AirTags, which have been getting beat up in the, in the news. But um, uh, I've got it attached to a couple car, sets of car keys. And I've got one on my, um, I've got a swim bag. And a backpack that I use for swimming. And so I've got one in each of those things, too, so I can mm-hmm. find my gear. What I've noticed is that if I walk away, it'll tell you, hey, you've walked away and left your backpack. You know, my phone and my watch will buzz at me, which I kind of like. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, even if I walk across the pool, that's far enough away that it says, hey, wait a minute, you're walking away from your devices. You know? And it's like, okay. Yeah. It's a nice little reminder so that, you know, at the end of the day as I'm packing up to leave, I don't walk off and leave my stuff. Yeah, yeah. My only complaint so, about that is that Apple doesn't seem to understand what families are. Um, and, and it's not like all the people who work there are single, but, oh, my gosh, it's terrible. Like, I can't be the only family in the world that puts the keys on a peg inside the door and, and you know, whomever is leaving takes the keys with them. So we don't each have our own private set of keys for all of the vehicles. We have uh, a set of keys for one vehicle and a set of keys for the other vehicle. And every time anybody in the family takes the vehicle, they get a notification that they're being tracked by an unknown um, uh, uh, Apple, um, what do they call the stupid things? I forgot it already. AirTag. They're being tracked by yeah. an unknown AirTag. You know, and the first time it popped up, my wife panicked. It's like, well, wait a minute. Why am I being tracked? And I'm like, it's the keys. Yeah, that's, it's the keys. That's, that's a scary. That's a scary word. Right. Well, and then and then the worst thing is, is now she's become sort of immune to it. So like if somebody did put an unknown tracker on her car or something, you know, to follow her around, she would ignore it because she's been trained to ignore that message because, oh, it's just my keys on my car. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And it's it's really irritating. There there should be some way that once you when you register the air tag that you can say, okay, here's the family members on there, and and tell the family members, you know, it should then send the family member a message saying, hey, an air tag has been shared with you. Do you want to accept this or not? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't be allowed to add them in without them accepting it because then a bad guy could just add the person in, right? So, well, the developers, developers at, at Apple didn't do their research very well or figure out the use cases. Mm-hmm. 
But that's what it, there's oftentimes there's a great number of use cases that they they go through, but I don't know why they didn't hear. Yeah. This one seemed real obvious. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and uh, to their defense, though, they've been catching a lot of bad press over the um, uh, the uh, air tags, and right. and they went they bend over backwards to do things like warn you when you're being tracked by one of these things, and and you know pre existing air tags there was the tile trackers and and a, and a countless other type of Bluetooth tracking devices. I've had them in the past that I would clip onto my keys or my backpack for this exact same reasons. And they don't warn you at all. Anybody could be yeah. tracking you. And those things still don't warn you. And and, and yet, you know, none of these articles that, that complain about, oh, no, somebody's been tracked by an AirTag, points out that, you know, that there's a whole bunch of people. The only reason they know they were tracked by an AirTag is because their phone tells them. You know, if you're being tracked right. by, by one of these other devices, you don't get anything. You're just tracked. You yeah, know? the bad feature. So, so to them, the bad feature is I'm being warned. Right. Yeah. Oh, no. They're telling me that I'm being tracked, you know, and that's what the I wish that's what the 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 people writing these articles, if they had half a brain, would point out. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect because any of these kind of tracking devices can be used badly. Right. But at least the air tags tell you, hey, you're being followed by an air tag that we don't know or that you don't know. Um, And in order for the air tag to work, it has to be registered. So they've got to go back to who registered it. That means it's got to be somebody's iCloud account. Now, granted, you can set up an iCloud account and have a, a burner phone that you've you know put on a on a uh, prepaid phone, um, uh, you know that you picked up at Walmart or something. But that's by the time you've done all that, that's a pretty heavy expense to track somebody. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's I don't know. I just, you know, it seems to me when there's others out there who are doing the exact same thing but not even giving you the warning, that should just be absolutely a requirement to be pointed out every time you write an article about this thing. You can't, you know, to complain about the one who actually tells you and has taken some effort to make it a safer device is mm-hmm. really inappropriate as far as as reporting, you know? That's just poor reporting. That's not that's not being honest with the your audience. Um in my mind, I'll tell you one thing though. Complaining about the um, the ability of the um, uh, you know or a function of the air tags and is something that I bothers me a lot. I think they need to add that feature and they should add it you know in the next point upgrade. It's just it's not that big of a deal uh, to to say hey you know send a message to somebody and and they can accept it. Just like when you, when you create a family, you know, it, it, uh, uh, or you share a, um, a photo, uh, you can have Mm -hmm. a shared photo album. It then sends a message to everybody saying, Hey, this album has been shared with you. Do you want it? That's the exact same function that's needed with the air tags. You know, an air tag has been shared with you. Do you want it? Um, it's not that, um, it's, it's not like, you know, mind bendingly different than anything they're already doing. And if you have an idea like that on just about anything from Apple, they actually have a product feedback page. It's actually uh, apple.com slash feedback. And I sent you a link to that uh, yesterday. I don't know if you saw it um, um, in prep for the no. show. Um, but it's right above the very first uh, thing that you sent that showed them, uh, which we'll get to in a minute, the 21 most iconic PCs of all time. But it's an interesting page if you look at it because um, it – at the top of the page shows hardware products, and it lists iPhones, iPads, Apple Watch, Apple TV, AirPods, HomePod, 
iPad Touch, MacBooks, MacBook Airs, MacBook Pros, iMacs, iMac Pros, Mac Pro, Mac Mini, Magic Mouse, and AirTags. That's the hardware. Then down below yeah. that, they've got iOS and iPadOS and all of the Apple apps for that, including Safari and Reminders and Music Memos and Home and GarageBand, etc. Everything that Apple does. Then below that, Mac OS apps. And they even list the very first one up there. It's alphabetical. The first one up there is Aperture. They haven't sold, or I guess they, I don't think they even sell Aperture anymore. Um, they certainly don't update it anymore. It's a dead product. But they still list it there because if people are using it, they want you to know, yeah. you know, hey, tell us something about this. I don't know that that would be very high priority if you told them, you, especially if you wanted new features. But if there, <laughs> if there was a severe bug that was causing your system to crash, they'd probably go fix it for you. Um, you know, but they've got, um, you know, Mac OS itself, as well as like notes and numbers and QuickTime and, uh, time machine is their yeah. backup and their stock, even their little stock app, which, you know, basically is just showing you the price of stocks. I mean, all that right. stuff, as well as their iCloud stuff and their services, Apple fitness and Apple music and Apple news. And, you know, they, there's a whole bunch, Apple pay, they've got the Apple school manager, which is a, a most people aren't aware of this, but it's a, a, a classroom management tool that was created for um, uh, by Apple. So that you know, there's a any one of those you can click on it and then say, you know, here's here's here, here's how to contact me. Give me your name and your address, your email address, and then tell them what it is you're talking with, what the issue is. You give it a subject title and you know what kind of feedback is it. Is it a feature request or a bug report or a performance or hardware or software compatibility issue? You know, and then a, a place where you type it out. What is it? And then, you know, and then they ask a little bit about your device so that they know what you're using. So they want to know what kind of computer you're using, which version of the OS, that kind of stuff, what browser you're using, things like that. Um, things that help them troubleshoot it. So, um, but if you've ever worked with something on a Mac or an iPhone or an iPad, uh, or any Apple device, and, and it doesn't seem to work the way you want it to, A, check their knowledge base first. Just go to apple.com and and uh, and click on support and see that if you're using it right. But if, it doesn't, if, if you're using it right and it doesn't work, or worst case, it causes your device to reboot or something weird like that, um, this is the way you go tell them about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think enough people know that. <laughs> You know, it's uh, when there's something something like I put down a feature request for AirTags. I want them to support families. You know, they should be able to request families be, you know, I, I can request somebody be added to the AirTag. And that person then should get notification that they've been added to the AirTag and if they want to join. Yeah. Well, that's that's good to know. Uh, just uh, Apple.com uh, slash feedback. Right. Apple.com slash feedback. And anybody who's listening, please go in there, click on AirTags, and tell them that they need to add families and that they should make it work the way I described it. That way, then, if a whole bunch of us do this, maybe they'll fix the dang thing because it's, yeah. it's a major pain. Democracy. Major pain. You know, and, and well, yeah, and, and the, to be honest, I mean, you know, unless I, I'm, it's not like Apple lives in a vacuum, they listen to podcasts and stuff. And so people who work there will hear things that way as well. But this is another way of just letting them know, you know, so that they can hear from people. Yeah. Hey, this is kind of dumb. Why doesn't this product work better? And um, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe yeah. maybe they'll listen and fix it. 
Um, you know, but it's the old story that Apple used to tell people. It's like, well, we only have so many developers and so many resources, and so you know, we get we'll, we work on this for a while, and then we'll get to that. And you know, it's like I would just say to that. You're a trillion dollar company. Yeah. Don't give me that BS. It, well, that's what I'm saying. Now, nowadays, that that that's that that sounds pretty thin when you, when they you know if they try to say something like that, it's like yeah, you've got as many resources as you want at this point. So it's just a matter of allocating. You know, honestly, the the feature I'm talking about is like one programmer for for less than a month, probably. Um, yeah. You know, and he could probably go look at the code in um, in the um, uh, photos app. To see how shared photos are work work and and probably pick that up and just rework it. Quite frankly, I mean it's it's the same thing. It's you know yeah. it's just shared ownership of a device. And imagine that families who have shared ownership of a device. Oh my goodness, you know it's one of those things where I've heard a lot of people complain about the iPad too. It's like, well, why doesn't the iPad allow you to? Uh, to log out and log back in and have multiple users using an iPad in a family. You know, not every family can afford to have an iPad for every individual. So why yep. can't I have an iPad that I can have, you know, my login and my kids log in and my wife's log in and and we each get to see our own stuff. You know, I don't want to just hand my kid my iPad all the time because then he's getting all of my emails and all of my text messages and that I you know, I don't want that. But there's times when I want to just hand my kid an iPad, and I can't afford, you know. And I guess the base one is what three hundred and thirty bucks or something now. But you know, that's still three hundred and thirty bucks. Yep. Yeah, when you got a family, uh, that 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 doesn't always stretch far enough to get the kids uh, things that they they really need. Yeah. Yeah, three twenty nine is the basic uh, iPad with um, Wi Fi only, sixty four yeah. gigabytes of space, which is honestly a pretty good deal. But still, it's it's three hundred and thirty dollars. Somebody's got to come up with that, right? Yeah. So, and I know you know if you, if you're looking at well, do I put gas in my tank so I can go to work and feed my family, or do I buy another iPad? You know, it's not a hard choice. <laughs> it's just not a hard choice. Yeah. So, all right, twenty-one most iconic PCs of all time, time, time. I thought I thought this was just a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, to kind of go back and uh, for people who've been in the PC tech or if you, if technology is your thing, it's been been kind of fun uh, looking uh, at where we've been and and how little time it's taken really to get here uh with uh with the new stuff yeah well i mean little time is a is a um uh well you know it's, it's you know it's 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 years but uh at the same time we've come seems like light years you know sure yeah yeah i mean but you think about it it's it's we're talking back you know mid 70s is sort of when they started right is when personal right. computers were something that, that you know you as an individual could go buy a computer and have a computer in your home. So we're talking mid seventies to now. That's you know just shy of fifty years. Did you push the galaxy uh, gallery rather button to see? The, I don't see uh, a gallery button. In fact, what I see is one picture of one thing with no buttons anywhere. So I don't. I, this to me is oh, like. Well, there, there's the Mac 
that you see sitting there. Yeah. And in the front oh, of it, view, it says oh, view gallery. Got you. Okay. That wasn't an obvious one. Okay. So here we are. The first okay. one. Okay. And so. Then it, and, then, and then we can slide to the right. Uh, yeah. After so the that. Uh, first one up so is it, the Xerox Alto. Right? Yeah. Now, in this 73. wasn't something that most people own. This was a. Right. This was a business machine. Yeah. Well, this was the machine that that both Apple and Microsoft had seen in demo at Xerox um, uh, before it was released to the public, right? And this was what was supposedly the inspiration to to uh, both the Mac and Windows because it was the first computer that had a mouse. Well, a graphical user interface is basically what they're saying. You know? Right. The, yeah. The GUI. The, the, but that the that first, was first driven GUI. by the mouse. That's how you how you how you got through a GUI, right? Yeah, in those days, that's the way it was. Now we find a lot of ways to get through a GUI. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, yeah, that was the that was the inspiration that got Steve Jobs started. Yeah, with what he's done at Apple. Yeah, I mean that was what created the Lisa, which was a ten thousand dollar computer. Which then he came back and said, "No, wait a minute, reboot. We'll make yeah. a two thousand dollar computer." And he made the the the, the Mac. After the lease, and and, th- and then you switch to the next one to the right is the Altair eighty eight hundred, right? Which back in uh, ni- nineteen seventy four, I had serial number one, right? And and it, that was later recalled by the president of the company when he had ser- serial uh, a series two machine, and I wanted the more capable machine. So right. I don't know what serial number of that was, but I had. The very first one, because I, I urged him on to give me something so I could get started on the software, and he really wanted the software too, so he gave me a machine. Yeah, and it didn't have the it didn't have the floppy drive that's shown in the picture. Under, right. Yeah. The picture. The yeah. The picture. The floppy drive was a case that was almost as big as the computer, maybe not quite as high, but uh, was that was totally external, separate device. Yeah. All you had was just the the original case. I remember that sitting sitting in our living room. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the original Serial One didn't look nearly as classy as this. It didn't have the big labels on it. It was pretty simply put together with just the dot, the uh, lights. Yeah, the LEDs. Uh, the front. LEDs and, and switches. switches. Yeah. Yeah, and and they had labels, but uh, probably not as nice as these. Yeah. No, these are. This one was pretty and stenciled and looked like what everybody imagined a computer should look like. Lots of blinking lights, right? And, yeah, obvi- and obviously the case wasn't made out of plexiglass like this one that's on display somewhere. Well, that's right. And and the one that I had, instead of having multiple boards in it, it had one board with wires all over it. Yeah. Were, in order to make it work, they attached uh, wires at different places. Right, and yeah. There so, were <laughs> hand-done jumpers all over the place. It was, a, yeah. it was kind of a spaghetti now, inside. Now, now, I'm sure that Apple still has that somewhere in their own museum, but... Uh, Not Apple. The, I'm sorry. This is Altair. Atari. Atari. It's not Atari either. Altair. No, not Atari. I can't speak right. Yeah. Altair. Yeah, Altair uh, disbanded, of course, a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, they were bought out by, um, uh, it was a company that made big disk drives or something, wasn't it? Like Data General or something like that? Yeah, that immediately kind of shut them down because yeah. they, just, they just took the technology for their own use. Right. Uh, but uh, the second uh, computer that I had, I donated to a, a museum in San Diego, which yeah. then shut down and donated their stuff to somebody else. So, yeah. 
all this stuff moves around. Yeah. But I, uh, I look back and I say it's too bad I didn't have a place to just store it because it'd probably be worth a whole lot at an, at auction these days, you know. Yeah. Just for people who want to have those yeah. kind of things. Yeah. No, you're right. Although I think that um, while those are interesting, they're they're not the value of those is not as high as the like the first generation apples just because of you know right. Apple went on to be uh, you know something. The brand is still around and it's a bigger deal, whereas Altair kind of disappeared. So, um, yeah. If 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 Mitz was still around as a company, then then the Altair eighty eight hundreds would probably be worth more just because, you know, sure of, of the, the subsequent thing. But yeah. So the next one up is the IBM personal computer, the first PC. This is when when Big Blue got into the personal computer game and everybody went, uh oh, what's going to happen? You know, are they going to push everybody out of business and they kind of did, um, well, you know, with the exception of Apple. Well, that's what got uh, Microsoft started. Right. Basically, Microsoft uh, got the contract to do the software for them. Yeah. And, well, uh, and, and the, I, the story, and you know, was that the, that the IBM guys went up to Seattle to talk to the folks that did CPM, and somehow there was some confusion, and they. They they missed the meeting. the The guys that were supposed to be there were at lunch or something like that. So they literally walked across the street to this other little st- shop called Microsoft while they were just kind of hanging out and started talking to Bill Gates and Paul Allen. And they basically went, "Yeah, we've got an operating system." <laughs> and and so they showed the copy that they had, and then later they went and licensed that co- or they bought the co- the operating system from some other guy who had actually written it. So they didn't even write the first operating system. The DOS yeah. operating system. They they once they knew they had a buyer, they went and bought right you know bought it because they were just using a copy of it. So right. and and I think the genius of what they did was that they they didn't sell it to IBM. They licensed it, and so oh, that's yeah. what what I mean that was their you know Bill Gates' parent father being a, an attorney. They they were smart in that sense in that they they you know as as young guys. Yeah. They didn't just say make you know give me a big number that makes my eyes go wide so that I can say here. They said no, we'll license it to you. And it was a non-exclusive license. And everything that was in the IBM computer was basically off the shelf parts, so anybody could make IBM clones, which is you know, and then you could go well, buy a license of of the operating system. And so that's where computers really took off because people couldn't afford a sixteen hundred dollar IBM PC, but you know a a four hundred dollar knockoff with with a licensed version of the operating system, which also got copied. And, all and, over and the, place. the funny thing to me is, to the crowd of techies in those days, uh, IBM didn't mean diddly to them. Right. Yeah. 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 But but once it became obvious that you could get a working computer that was an IBM it, compatible with with running it, DOS, yeah, it, it, you know. It, it just served as a standard to refer to it PC compatible. That right. Was, those are the words you wanted to use, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you want, yeah, you wanted to be able to run DOS because that became the operating system as IBM because once IBM started selling those machines, then there was software available for them. So other people were writing software. It just became something for people to coalesce around um, yeah. more so than than any of the others. The other place that they did coalesce, though, was the Apple II. Yep. Yeah. I remember in college, um, I didn't have one because they were way too expensive. Um, I had alternatives, which I'm sure will be in the list here. 
but I knew somebody on my swim team that uh, had an Apple II and, uh, and used that to write their papers. You know, and, it, and at the time I was in college, if you had a computer on which to write your papers, your own computer, then you were outside the norm. You know, you, you had a, a leg up on the other, everybody else because everybody else either used a typewriter or they would go use the computer lab at school to write at. So you had to go sit there and write. You know, or write it all yeah. out by hand and then type it into the computer. And if you're going to do that, you might as well just type it into a typewriter. Or there was still a bunch of people who you could go and say, and here's 10 bucks, type this up for me. There were a lot of people in yeah. college that would make money by just being, by typing up papers for people. Yep. Yeah. Um, so next up is uh, the BBC Micro. Now, this was British Broadcasting Corporation. This wasn't really in our country. This was in the UK, but it was uh, one of two standards that uh, was in the UK that was, I mean, if you yeah. had a computer, odds are it was one of these. I've read stories about how this was the computer there, you know, yeah. and it was it was pushed by the British government because they wanted to promote computer literacy in schools and at home. And, uh, and so, it, was, it was also known as more prop properly then as the acorn computer right and yeah. and i think it was because you got an apple you know an acorn you know this they didn't really want to care about the company they right. cared about the computer right exactly <laughs> and, and it looked kind of like an apple too i mean it had a a uh, a keyboard with a broad base behind it on which you would set a monitor or usually a, a small television set you know a little black and white tv is also was used a lot in these kinds of computers yeah. So the Sinclair, remember the Sinclair computers? These oh, now, were. Well, now that's the one that got me excited because now the internal computer had been enhanced tremendously. Right. Uh, instead of yeah. being an Intel thing, uh, I forgot uh, who actually built the Z80, but the Z80 and 81. Yeah, wasn't that uh, a Motorola really... chip? That was an upgraded um, 8088? No, that wasn't. Uh, that was a different one. Z80 wasn't but, okay, but but anyway, uh, th this had you you had to understand the assembly code level machine language in order to have any excitement about this. But all of the hackers in those days were really coding in machine code anyway. And once you mm -hmm. you recognized that the 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 new instructions that you got, this was like. And 8080 instruction set plus right. a bunch of other really uh, sort of macro. Zilog is the company. Zilog, yes. Yeah. Uh, another real small company, but at least they were making electronic parts. Right. And uh, uh, I was an instrumentation then, so I actually ordered uh, several card computers at that point that right. I would install inside of my equipment and draw the power off of the existing power supply, uh, like inside a tape recorder, because I wanted to gather data and just ha and program the handling of that uh, collection of data right. uh, through various D to A converters and whatever, or A to D converters. Yep. Federico and Fagan and his and his day. staff of eleven employees created the chip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the 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 Spectrum were the people who who, you know, put it together in a computer with a keyboard and all right. that. Right, yeah. Sin yeah. Now made it accessible and easy to use. Yeah, the Sinclair was, was 
Well, and what it did is it made a computer that was um, very calculator-like. It was it was not, um, you know, it was it was a more compact was, yeah. packaging and stuff too. You know. Yeah. Yeah, they were rapidly moving to something that was more pleasing to the crowd they were selling to. And as right. I recall, there were lots of games written for this one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which then comes up with the next one, along with the ZX Spectrum, the Commodore 64 defined the home computing in the 80s. 17 million yeah. units sold. Yeah, and this is the one that yeah. I had when I was in college. I had a Commodore 64. And initially, my uh, storage device was a, an audio cassette player. It had there, there was like a um, uh, for thirty bucks you could buy. Somebody was selling. They basically made their own interface, and you could buy this interface that would literally plug into like the the microphone jack on a audio cassette player, and it would uh, there was like a plug for the audio and plug for the headphones. You had to have a cassette player that had a headphone and a and a microphone jack on it, and then. You would hit play on that, and then hit, and then go into the software and say, "Okay, save," and it would basically record acoustic screeching onto the tape, so that yeah. that it could then now, read that back. Now, the, the the key thing for Commodore is they sold it through regular department stores, mm -hmm. and they had cartridges that you could buy for it. Right, which were, was was where the gaming industry really got going. Now, right, even though people were writing code and had it on tapes and stuff like that right. the cartridge was much much easier you just plug it in and start yeah. playing yeah you didn't have to load anything and wait for it to be read in or anything like that you just plugged it in and it was there and it was available and uh yeah and commodore did that along with uh, atari also was an early cartridge company and yeah. that's where they sort of got their home gaming start was um uh, you know atari was prominent but they didn't sell as many and, and uh right. And it wasn't quite as elegant as right. the Commodore. Well, and what they what they really had done is they focused more on the gaming aspect and less on the computing. So their computer, air quotes, like their original, I think it was the the four hundred. It didn't even have a keyboard. It just had like uh like a weird flat touch panel thing that you know, um, you had to kind of click on. It was weird. It was it was like the early touch panels for um for um, uh, phones too before I, iPhone came along. It wasn't even capacitive touch, so it was. It was just mm -hmm. it was not a typable surface, really. It was it was kind of you had to push one finger yeah, at a time. That was the biggest fault of the Atari. Was yeah. The keyboard. And, and then subsequent versions of the Atari then fixed that. They came out with better models that had keyboards. But by that point, they had already been at way outsold by by the Commodore. Um, yeah. Yeah. Remember Comal? That was a programming language that was available on a cartridge that was pretty cool. Yeah. For the it, it was Commodore a cartridge. 64. It, it, it was a cartridge. And in my mind. They were the first win, first company to to provide an integrated development environment. Right. Now they didn't call it that then, but what it meant was that sitting there at the Commodore computer with a monitor, a TV or something plugged in the back, uh, you could uh, run an editor, then you could run the assembler, and then you could run the program with with a debugger. Yeah. So you had the whole setup. Uh, and this language was more uh, capable than uh, basic from Microsoft has ever been. Right. Uh, it it uh, it included a lot of features of Pascal, which was a more modern language than basic. Right. And I I always 
looked down on basic as a step backwards from the time I found out about Comal. Yeah. And, yeah, it was a more I'm structured sure. language and, and I offer a lot more capabilities, um, yeah. you know, in just the way you could uh, put together your code. You know, I mean, basic was still at that point in time, everything was, you know, line numbers and, and go to's and things like that. You know, it was, it was yeah. fairly rudimentary. Um, you know, today's basic is quite different, but but at that time it was it was. Yeah, it was kind of a chore. You know, I got a story about my Commodore 64, too. When I had it, I had a um, an early thermal printer that was a color printer. And so, but it but oh, yeah. but it was a uh, pretty high-quality print at the time because it would, like, literally melt this stuff from the print tape onto the paper. And so right. uh, nice sharp edges and high contrast, uh, much nicer looking than most dot matrix printers were at that time. And so, and, and yet, you know, laser printers were $5,000. And so it wasn't a laser printer, but it, and it was a little slow, a little, it was a lot slow, but it printed really, right. really high quality print. And so I invited my girlfriend at the time to come over and type her paper. And so she types in this paper and it takes her 30 minutes or so to type in the, you know, five or 10 pages or whatever it was that she had to type in. And, and we went to print it and the cable got bumped or something and the computer reset and we had not saved, had not saved it to the, um, to the, the backup cassette tape. And so all of that work had been lost and I got the look of death going, you know, had I just typed all that in on my typewriter, I would be done now. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, oh, but this is so much better because you can type it in. And if you see an error, you don't have to like erase the page or back up or anything. Because she had a computer that you could hit the backspace (laughs) and it would erase. And and it has a special feature that it'll kill it all. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Lost all the work. I will say it was a happy ending, though, because she eventually married me. So I guess she, she forgave me somewhere along the way. Um, but, uh, yeah, Elaine was not at all happy that day. Uh, you know, mechanical typewriters never reboot in the middle of your work. You know? And, uh, I want to say mechanical, it was electric typewriter. We had, she had a nice electric brother typewriter. Um, we actually eventually even bought an interface for that typewriter so that it could be used as a printer and you could drive it as a printer as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh. And then you had literally type quality, typewritten quality type as you printed. Um, yeah. And much faster than the than the uh, the little Oki Data uh, thermal printer that I had had. But uh, anyway, yeah, Commodore 64, that was a great computer. It was a lot of fun as, you were, as I was kind of learning. And I went from there to a PC clone. That, that's when, that right as I kind of quit using the Commodore 64 is when you and I started going to a bunch of computer swap meets and buying parts and pieces and building our own computers. Yeah. Um, so I, I never had an original PC. My first computer was a 286 clone. So it was the yeah. second, well, we'll, second we'll, generation. We'll get, we'll get to that in a few steps, but the yeah. next one is, is the Apple Macintosh. Right. 1984. Uh, yeah. The big year. Yeah. That was supposed to, that was supposed to be the, uh, what was it? It was a famous book written named 1984 wasn't it right yeah that or was the uh, sort Doomsday of doomsday or something well it was a dystopic future 1984 was um uh the world was at war and there was basically two factions and and yeah. uh 
people were changing the language to av- to avoid saying things that they didn't want you to think about and it was you know it was pretty pretty bleak and so the pitch was why 1984 won't be like 1984 and that was iconic commercial with the woman running down the aisle in a theater and chucking a hammer up at the screen and this this big brother person's basically yeah. you know spouting out uh, to the to the to the mind numbed audience, and she breaks the screen. And they only played that that commercial one time, and it was during halftime at the Super Bowl, January first, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, and uh, and that was it. Job, was... Jobs' first step on the stage, wasn't it? Um, it really was. I mean, you know, it was the, it was the first big, <laughs> big um, uh, sort of splash. I mean, there was they didn't hold an event like that or anything. You know, they just that was the introduction. It was a commercial, but that was sort of the first thing that he did that he put his stamp on the computing industry. I mean, the the Apple II, obviously he was you know running the company as they did that, but that was really um, <clears throat> well, conceived he went, he of went. by his his partner, um, the other Steve, right? So Steve Wozniak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but the, the Apple II was really Wozniak's idea and concept and, and everything. Yeah. The, this was sort of his. He kind of ran a skunk works operation within Apple to get this developed. Well, so, what happened is that Steve Jobs had gone away and formed a new company next and and built this uh No, machine. no, no, you're jumping way forward. I'm sorry. He was still at Apple when he when the Mac came out. He had never he had not gone anywhere. Um, oh, that's right. It was later on that the board then really pressured him to bring in a more experienced CEO to run the company. And so he yeah. sort of selected Scully, and they had a falling out, and that's when he got pressed out of the company, and that was much later. Um, uh, well, I shouldn't say much later, but it was it was later, at least at least five years later. I don't remember the exact dates and timelines. But, yeah, then he went and formed Next afterwards. But this initial thing, you know, once he saw that the Xerox Park computer, which was our first one up, uh, he said, "I see the future." And and you got to admit, he was very visionary at that point. It was like he saw where computers were going and said, "No, these things where we're typing in in you know code and and commands at a line, that's the wrong way to build a computer. This is the way it's got to be." And he, you know, went wholeheartedly into this. Um, yeah. And he was sort of brutal at it, you know cutting out anybody who didn't agree with him within his company. Um, but he was right. This was the way computers needed to go at that time. So, Anyway, uh, flip, flipping ahead, the, the next one yeah. in line is, is a dream machine. When I had my Commodore 64, they had a, a, a more powerful version of right. that. Right. Yeah, uh, this was the one that came out. the Amiga. Came out to be the successor to the Com- Commodore 64. Yeah, um, didn't see the success because it was priced, yeah, uh, a bit higher and yeah, and it, it it did things that no other computer at that time could do. It, they literally had had gone beyond anybody else. But that's right. But they also priced yeah. themselves out of what made their the Commodore sixty four so popular. Yeah. yeah, I I never had an Amiga, but I but I I lusted after them for a while. Yeah. So we're, mm. there's quite a few ahead, so let's just keep going on. Yeah. The next one was just another iteration of a different way to do things. And right. That's the uh, Compact. Compact. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the first <laughs> portable. The Compact Portable 3 is the one they show here. But Compact basically made portables. And when we say portable, it was a briefcase that you would then bring to a place and then assemble your computer there on the spot. But you could take it with you. 
Yeah. Lightweight not, was not, not the word. Not portable like you think of it today. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, remember, the term we used was luggables because they really weren't, uh, you know, it's not a laptop by any stretch. Uh, no. Uh, but it was portable. You could pick it up and take it with you. It was designed to be carried along. It had it had a handle on it, and it looked like a big suitcase. Yeah, very <laughs> much so, yeah. Uh, next one up, the IBM ThinkPad. So this was a laptop clamshell design like we expect to see nowadays. Um, but remember the early laptops, there was a huge issue in the industry is trying to figure out how to make a pointing device that works on the device because... Otherwise, you had to carry along in your briefcase with your laptop a mouse to plug into it to to move the pointer around. And so early on, IBM had this little thing that looked like the pink eraser on the top of a pencil in the middle of the keyboard. And all it was was like a touch sensor. It didn't actually move, but if you pushed it up, you could, and the harder you pushed, the more it would, the faster it would go. You could move your arrow around the screen. And I never had one of these computers, but I had some that I had to support at the newspaper that I worked at. And I actually found the eraser moving thing not bad, mm-hmm. you know. And, in fact, IBM stuck with that for a long time. Even after they added touchpads to their computers, they still had the little, what I don't remember what they called it, the, the touch point or something like that. In the, They still had that up there in the keyboard for people to use for those who liked it. And it was nice because you never had to, it was literally in between your, your, your two index fingers. I mean, it was right there on the, you know, the, the QWERTY line. And so you didn't have to move your hand around at all. Yeah. I don't recall whether the clamshell design for portables was uh, originated with IBM, but a lot of, uh, to me, that was the big uh, importance about this machine, even though it didn't get the tension that the, pointing device did but right. uh, the fact that we've retained clamshells to today says right something. yeah well and i don't know if you remember but i remember when we had the mitz altar 8800 sitting on your desk at uh in our living room in new mexico uh at that time you and i had a conversation about computers and the future of computers and you told me at that time you said, all of that is going to be in a device like this. And there was a three-ring binder there. And you lifted up the binder and said, the screen will be here and the keyboard will be here and you'll be able to carry it around. Yeah. And you told me yep. that then. And that was 10 to 15 years before this act- we actually saw it. But you told it to me. Well, I knew, you knew it was coming. Yep. Well, that was uh, kind of where I perceived my job is to anticipate technology and, and yeah. things that would happen. And yeah. uh I, I guessed a few right. Yeah. So next up is... Oh, go ahead. I can't say I was 100%. Nobody ever is, but, no. you know, I... No, but, you know, I mean, it's it's there's value in, like, reading the leaves, the tea leaves, right? Looking at what we got now and saying, well, what's going to advance? And, you know, yeah. as, as you've said before, you, you didn't just read the PC magazines, but you read the engineering magazines, engineering times, and double E times, or triple E times, rather. And so you kind of saw where the technology was going and thought about, well, how is that going to be applied? And you could make yeah. pretty educated guesses about what was going to be happening. And so, oh, yeah. um, you know, and, and you can yeah. still do that. There's people who do that today with, you know, higher accuracy than, than just people yeah. taking guesses, basically. Now, now the, the next one, I think they got out of order because you've already talked about the home-built PC. Right. But there were, there were literally thousands of different components to yeah. choose from. Uh, uh, you could group them, you know, by hard drives and by yeah. 
uh, motherboards and cards and yeah, you know, you name it. Yeah, there beca- uh, there suddenly really- was manufacturers making you know all kinds of of parts and pieces. And we would, we, I mean, you could buy them in, in electronic stores, but they cost a lot more. We would go to these swap meets that were just pop-ups on weekends in places, uh, sometimes well, literally on the street. Other times they were they rented space in a hall, and a whole bunch of vendors would show up, and you'd pay a, the, the whoever organized it a, you know, a $10 fee to get in. And then you could go around and, and compare prices between one vendor and the yeah. next. And a lot of these things, I swear, these were, you know, hey, my cousin Bob, picked it up when it fell off a truck you know kind of deals i mean there was yeah you know although you know i say that there were also some of these guys who were there all the time and if you had a problem with a part you could bring it back to them and they'd say oh well here take this one you know they'd swap them for yeah. you they, they were they they stood behind their yeah. sales so it was yeah well, it was it and, was a lot of fun and you're and the other really key thing is if you wanted to upgrade your machine you didn't have to buy a new machine you could just buy right. a part to fix that part of your system yeah and that was the major uh, advantage that all of these PC clones had over things like the Mac and the and the Commodore 64 and the Amiga and Atari computers and TI computers and Radio Shack computers was that it wasn't a sealed case that you bought one way, you know. And some of those you could open up and add memory to maybe, but they weren't nearly as expandable as as this, which was basically everything was swappable. The power supply, the yeah. actual motherboard, any of the graphics boards or I.O. ports or any. You could add and subtract and multiply and, and re, you know, add, uh, replace and upgrade any of that stuff. Um, and for a while, you could even take the, the actual um, uh, CPU out and put a new CPU on the same motherboard. Um, pretty quickly, Intel and, uh, and AMD, uh, who was even working back then making clones, uh, started like when they would upgrade the chips they would change the pin configuration so then if you wanted to upgrade your actual cpu you had to buy a new motherboard too but even then you could put the new motherboard in and then yep. keep keep your graphics card and keep your you know your io ports and your power supply and the case you know so you didn't have to replace everything it was just um it was an exciting time it was yep. a lot of fun yep that really was uh then the, there's two in a row that are colorful uh, mm-hmm. One specifically for gaming and Alienware did mm-hmm. well because they're still around. Yeah, and then of course Apple came out with these plastic G3 iMacs that uh, right. kind of got people's attention. That was the first one to break out of the nerdiness of yeah. grays and whatever. Well, I think and, they, you know, I, they did something there that is is uh, marketing wise. These are iconic, but I think that they they kind of skipped over the fact that that uh, Mac did something that was pretty phenomenal in there. A- quick note on Alienware. Alienware was bought out, and they're now, I believe, owned by Dell. Um, and so, uh, and I, I could be com- wrong on that, but Alienware, they're still around as a as a brand, brand. but they're not an independent uh, company anymore. Right. Um, now, but the thing on the Mac was... Prior to this G3 Mac, I'm, and I and I don't maybe this was the first one, but they switched from they they switched chips, and that's the first time any computer company had done that. I mean, the underlying code was completely different. They went from uh, a Motorola series of chips to the um, uh, PowerPC chip, which was a different and 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 they've done it again, and now they're doing it a fourth time. I mean, they switched from the PowerPC to the Intel chips, and now they're switching from Intel to, to Apple Silicon chips. 
So yeah. no, to my knowledge, no computer company had done that and has done that. Certainly not to the same level of success that they did it. Um, but that was a big deal, switching from – because they had not gone yet to um, to the modern operating system here. OS uh, Mac, Mac OS X or Mo, uh, Mac OS X had, was not shipping on these machines. These things started with um, the the original single users, you know, single task uh, OS, and then they then yeah. they then they switched to to um, OS X initially. Um, but it, originally, there even when they switched to that, they had machines that ran both. They they ran them simultaneously. They ran the old Mac OS basically well, and, in a window, and, and the and the switch was for the reason of performance. Right. Too. Yeah. It's yeah. Always, always been that, you know. So. Yeah. Anyway, uh, then another Apple machine, the yeah. iBook. Yeah, the uh, iBook G4, which was sort of their their switch their. Uh, design switch after going with all of the colorful candy bar colors that was sort of the iconic white laptop which became even a bigger deal when they started doing their their macbooks um a little bit later but it was that same basic look just a white computer with a touchpad in the front and apple was the first one that really said the touchpad needs to be in right there in the middle in the front um uh you know with the click pad right there with it it was um another sort of iconic design of them you know, but they they were this is where they kind of went to their more stark design concept. It was um, uh, I'm trying to remember what they Frog Design, I think, is the company that did the did the work with it. And their computers all had a very specific look to them at this point in time. Um, yeah. I guess that was I take that back. Frog Design actually was prior to the candy colored iMac. Um, yeah. But uh Anyway, they they went to a much, you know, this was sort of what we 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 blame or credit, depending on how you look at it, Johnny Ive for, you know, the very simplistic look. And this is also um, uh, this is the early two thousands. This is when they were running Mac OS ten now, and uh, so they had a multitasking operating system finally with memory protection that they didn't have before. So a kernel mm-hmm. kernel based OS. <clears throat> so Asus EPC now. The EPC was those netbooks that came out for a while, and those were tiny and incredibly underpowered. <laughs> I well, I remember when they came out, uh, and I wanted one so bad, but then I saw how they worked, and I went, eh. Because <laughs> it was what? You could pick yeah. up a computer for less than 300 bucks, right? That's when the first really cheap ones were out, but they were I, bad. I bought, I bought one of those things for Mom. Well, when we were in Cincinnati, uh, off the road in Cincinnati, I forgot, uh-huh. 2009. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I think it is, 2009. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it was a piece of junk. Yeah. So underpowered. Yeah. They were just, in order to, in order to go cheap, they were like the cheapest uh, CPU they could possibly get. All the parts were the cheapest they could possibly get. They were tiny. I mean, they were like nine-inch screens on a lot of them. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, they were just slow, terrible. I mean, they were the worst. It's like buying the, the, the least capable computer you could possibly ever imagine for the sake of portability and price. You got something cheap and it was little. It was cute. I liked that it was cute and little, but they were terrible. Yeah. They were terrible. They were just yeah. awful. And, and and the next one is basically the same machine doctored up to look cute for for kids. 
Yeah, the one PC that was um, uh, the idea was you know get a computer that's that's uh, less than a hundred dollars or keep it under the hundred dollar market. And the idea yeah. was that we can't and and it was supposed to have like um, uh, uh, wireless built into it so that kids could then uh, in developing right. countries have a laptop that they could work and use. And yeah, it was yeah. I mean, I suppose if you're a kid that had it growing up and and that's what you used and you were you know lucky and happy to have it but it was well uh, at this point at this point people really weren't ready to have them but somebody decided they wanted to sell them to schools right and so schools made a lot of dumb decisions in those days and bought some stuff that right kind of delayed didn't help the computers right uh, drive in schools any quicker you know yeah well early laptops a lot of them didn't have any connectivity or anything on them so you you know you had to carry things back and forth with a floppy disk and that's how you got data into your computer and shared it other places um and so you know it's hard to imagine a world that wasn't you know wirelessly connected like we have it now but that's that was the case and this one had some wireless connectivity in it. And I remember looking at it because they would sell. The, the idea was they would build them for less than $100 and make them available to, to people in, in, in developing countries. But that you could buy them here. But here they wanted more money for them. They wanted like three times mm-hmm. as much money. And for that money, you could buy a better laptop here. And so you looked at it and you went, eh. You know. Yep. Okay. Why don't you go on to the next one? Yeah, the That's next one. Favorite. Raspberry Pi. And it's still pretty phenomenal uh little computer i actually have um have uh several of them here uh running right now um you know i i keep like whatever the latest version of them is with their latest os so i can play with it every once in a while um mm-hmm. here but i've got one that's uh, uh one version back that's just running as a server and it actually runs something called homebridge and it allows me to to take some devices that are not homekit compatible but are remote and add them to my HomeKit. So I have a one-stop one place to go to HomeKit, and I can control all of my wireless devices. For example, I have some um, uh, uh, thing that I bought that I added into my blinds in my dining room area that opens and closes my blinds remotely, and I can turn it, you know, hit a, go to their software and open them or close them, and I can schedule them. But um, through HomeBridge, I can now put them in HomeKit, and I can go to one place, and along with my other lights and automation stuff that I've got, I can also see now my blinds, and I can open and close them, or I can see what state they're in, so that, you know, if, if I left them open and I want them closed, I can say, you know, close them. I can also then use Siri to control them, so I can say, you know, yo, Shlomo, close my blinds in the dining room, and it'll do that. So, um, yeah, I think the Raspberry Pi is uh, pretty amazing. If it, for, it, it sort of reminds me of those days when we used to go buy parts and pieces for computers because it's kind of a tinkerer's computer. And you can buy the basic computer still for like 35 bucks. Yeah, yeah except that this is still so elegant compared to the ones that, that oh, used to be. Yeah. In, in the sense that it's integrated into about three or four chips. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. And it's and, – and there's – I mean, there's nothing – you know, you're not buying bar- hardware and and assembling it, other than a you know a a case to stick it in, um, and it's running yeah. a um, uh, a an ARM PC, an ARM chip in there, so it's it's um, uh, you know very low power. It doesn't need a fan or anything to cool it off. ARM chips are the same thing that's in you know all of the Android computers and a derivative of what Apple uses for their uh, the A series and M series chips is ARM yeah. ARM core. And you know it's it's really amazing. I mean, the most recent version of it, the the Raspberry Pi Four, now 
you can get it. I mean, they used to come with like, you know, one or two gigabytes of memory. Now you can get one with up to eight gigabytes of memory in it. And for storage, they use an SD card and you can buy an SD card with, you know, uh, 500 gigabytes of space. And, and I think they have one that's built right into the keyboard now too, right? Well, you, you, well, they don't. They all they do is you know you just buy the motherboard, which is like I said, anywhere from thirty-five to seventy-five bucks, depending on how much memory you want to get with it. And then the SD card is your storage space. You can buy whatever size SD card you want to put your operating system on and and boot off of. And then you can you can buy any kind of case you want. And they have a case that is a keyboard, so it'll look almost like a old Commodore sixty-four. Or you can stick it in just a little right. cheap box and plug in, a, a, you know, a keyboard or use Bluetooth keyboard if you've got one. Any monitor it'll go to. It has HDMI out, so you can run it off of a television set if you want. But I mean, but but I but I I know they made them versatile so that you can put them together. But basically, the keyboard is a Raspberry Pi keyboard. It's made by another company. There's several of them out there. There's even a laptop case you can buy that has a monitor and a keyboard built into it. You can plug your board into that if you want and turn it into a laptop. Um, yeah. You know, it's there's a lot of options with it. I mean, you can you can you can. And that's why I said it reminds me of of the days when we were building computers because you can take that little tiny motherboard and put yeah. it in lots of different types of setups and use it for different things. Um, there's a guy that I follow online who took one and basically created a a garage door monitor so that he from his bed could see a, a green or a red led and it would tell him if his garage door was open mm-hmm. so when he goes to bed he could go oh i left the garage door open you know yeah yeah and i, I think he set it up so that he can also open it and close it from there but I, he can probably do it from his phone too but you know it's just a, a the, if you're interested in tinkering with computers you know that it runs raspbian unix which is like a debian version of unix or Linux rather, and uh, as a default, but it can run. There's lots of other operating systems for it as well. It's got pinouts, so you can literally do hobby type stuff and take you know feeds from the pins and and control switches or or get feedback from sensors, and then you can you know write programs to tell it to when you see something on this pin, current on this pin, then do that. It's just, it's it's if you like playing around and tinkering with computers. This is the way to yep. do it today, and it's affordable. Anybody could do it without spending a ton of money. You yep, know? that's the main thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really? it's 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 much cheaper than it was when we were we were buying you know clone PC parts. Um, yeah, and uh, and it's all there, and all the OS and stuff is free. So um, next computer up is the Microsoft Surface, which is their tablet PCs okay. that run uh, run Windows. So um, I don't have one, but I've played with them, and I know some people who do. And they're initially they were underpowered, but right now they're pretty decent computers. Yeah, yeah. Most of them run an Intel chip, but there are some that are, are the run ARM versions of Windows. And Microsoft has never done a great job of getting their operating system to run on other chips, as well as say Apple has. In that it'll the, the operating system runs fine, but there's just been not a lot of support for software. They've ported over their stuff. So if you run, if you primarily use your PC to run Office, you know, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, that stuff, then the ARM-based mm-hmm. ones work great. But if you want to run, you know, I don't think you're going to run Adobe Photoshop on an ARM-based Microsoft Surface thing and be happy. <laughs> you know? Right. So, um yeah. 
you know. And next in line is the Mac M1. Aha, the right, Mac M1, yeah. right? And this is the what they're showing the picture of the um, of the iMac. Um, yeah, you know, which basically looks like a big iPad on a stand. Um, yep. Although I got to say, and I and I'll stand by this, I understand why they did it, but the fact that it still has the big chin of metal on the bottom below the screen, to me, is a clunky design choice. I think yeah. that they it should have had it should have had the same border all the way around the screen and not had that big chin at the bottom. Well, now, I, I for, think they have speakers in there too. Well, from what I understand, but, the, uh, the basically all of the computing is in that chin at the bottom. So, and, and then they actually use the aluminum casing as the uh, as a heatsink for the for the CPU and everything. And so, um, you know, that is where everything connects out. And so, I understand I understand the design choice. I just don't like it. You know, I would have said put all the electronics in the chunk of aluminum stand and make the screen a perfect screen without any of the other crap on it, you know, so that the so that the border was the same width, top, sides and bottom. Um, And I think that would have looked more elegant and you could have put the same um, all of the electronics and everything in the stand instead of just making it a solid piece of aluminum. They didn't want any bent wires there at the hinge. So, well, they do it on all their laptops, and that's not going to bend as much as a laptop. So, and I will say, too, this iMac has the same problem that all the previous, not all, all but the very earliest iMacs had, uh, or at least the modular iMacs, that when when the iMac had the CRT screens, that it it still had this problem, and that is that there's no height adjustment. It sits and tilts, but I know a lot of people who have an iMac sitting on top of a stack of books or something in order to get it to the right height, because if you are a tall person, it sits too low. Yeah, you know, and and when they, when they went away from the CRT to the very first um, iMac that had a an LCD screen, it had an extensible riser. But they went away from that after mm-hmm. that, and none of the subsequent have had that. So, um, but there's no doubt that this is the, while while the design is is elegant in some fashion, and you know. I can complain about it, but I it, it, I understand their design choices. The big thing is the M1. You know, really, oh, I mean, yeah. that's what the, the, this techno technologically this computer was, this CPU was just a a you know victory lap for Apple. I think in terms of yeah, because there's no fans, no fans, and raw computing power beats anything that had been in an iMac before. And, uh, you know, anything that was available from Intel up until just the most recent ones. And even then it beats the pants off them in, you know, in power per uh, watt in energy use. And so that means that they run much cooler and, uh, you know, and they look cool on top of uh, on top of just running better. But also just their their attention to detail in terms of like, you know, initially when they were launched, there was very little, if any, software that had been recompiled to take advantage of the M1. And Apple's response was, fine, just run your Intel software on this. And it emulates the Intel so well that some uh, that there was a fair number of software tests that showed that you could run the software, your, your old Intel software, on this new M1 iMac, and it ran faster than it did on the Intel iMac. So, you know, yep. I mean, that's the kind of leap forward in processing power that this thing had and, and, and still has. Upper- and it's just the launching point right now that's going right. to continue to to grow. Yeah. yeah. Subsequent versions of Apple's software, or rather silicone, um, 
are gonna you know they're not gonna get any slower <laughs> that's for sure yep so i think it's interesting to see what what's going to happen with their mac pro you know that's the one that runs the intel xeon processors which are more powerful and hotter right. you know much hotter much less efficient than than the regular intel which are hot and inefficient um by comparison uh, you know how are they going to structure that what's what's going to be the m series processor they've done the m series pro and the m max is that going to be the the m1 ultra that's going to go into the mac pro you know i mean they got, they got... i think I, I i basically think for the for the pro it's such a different bird that they're going to have their, their own designation even for the chips you don't think yeah see i thought i i was thinking it'd be like the the ultra or something like that they'll stick with the series name which is m1 m2 mac you know whatever they're gonna oh, call they... this but i thought they'd call it like the ultra but the only way to get it would be in the pro series machine and i would be surprised you know when they were building this it took them several years to build this pro machine right i would be yeah. surprised if because the way it's the way if, if i understand it right is that the cpu sits on a daughter board and that the motherboard is basically just a bus. I would be surprised if you can't pop that out and they're going to sell you a a M1 Ultra chip that you can pop into it so that people who have the the Pro Mac Pros right now will be able to just upgrade. You know, Apple's that, never that, done that. Well, but they have done that, and they've done it in one computer, the Mac Pro. Historically, they did it in Mac Pro, and when they went to that little trash can shape, pa- you know, paper towel shape, Mac Pro, everybody complained, yeah. said that's not what we want. So they went back to an extensible, upgradable device. Yeah. I don't see why they wouldn't, you know, say that's what we're going to do here, too. Um, although, you know, how that works in terms of the the uh, unified memory, right? Because the current one has exterior memory exterior to the CPU, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe they won't be able to put. Maybe they'll use this almost the same case because they they solved that problem right of of an extensible case. But then they're going to um, um, uh, put new guts in it. So you can't upgrade the one you've got, but you'll you but the newer ones will be basically look the same. They'll just have new guts in it because that's what they've done with everything else, other than the iMac. But the, all the laptops yeah. and stuff look pretty much the same. Well, I say and that anyway. We- we we've had twenty mm-hmm. uh, computers that we've got to at this point that yeah. have had uh, kind of a turning point for each one of them. If you go back and look yeah. look at them, I think we tried to mention what that was for each. But uh, they're now looking to the future for the for the, the last one, uh, uh, foldable computers. Uh, we're not really we're right. into foldable phones at this point, but uh, I I uh-huh. suppose there's a possibility. To put them in the computers, but I don't think anybody's excited yeah. about it. Well, I mean, just imagine, you, you know, you, you talk about wanting a big tablet. Well, imagine have, having a big tablet that you're able to fold up so it doesn't, it's not quite so big, right? That's all this is, basically. It's their, The ThinkPad X1 Fold is Lenovo's latest take on the future of PCs. And it's basically yeah. a tablet uh, that will, uh, they said it comes equipped with Windows 11. Uh, it was introduced at CES this year, so just last month. <laughs> Um, I don't know if it's shipping yet, but uh, oh, they said, despite being commercially available, the X1 Fold strikes us as more of a design experiment. Oh, very high price point. Yeah, so. Yeah, I don't know. You know, the foldable screens, I like the idea, but I, I will, I mean, time will tell. I wonder how durable they really are. 
I mean, right now, a phone is a $2,000 phone to get a foldable phone. And yeah. you see them on television, but I haven't seen many in the wild. And we'll see how how durable they are. That'd be my biggest question. Is You, know, you yeah. see, the, the only thing, that concept that I have seen that sort of makes sense to me is instead of foldable, I, sh- I liked one that was rollable. Yeah. You know, because there you didn't have any sharp corners. Mm-hmm. You weren't putting all the pressure on one spot. You basically just had a flexible device that yeah. could yeah. roll up into something that was a reasonable sized product. Uh, and in the middle is where you could put the, uh, you know, when you unrolled it and powered it up, you right. could have all the electronics and stuff in the middle. Yeah. LG know? is starting to sell a TV that way. There's a TV that comes and it looks like a, it's basically a sound bar. And then you turn it on and out of the sound bar, it rolls up, it extends up and it, and it unfurls basically. And that's your screen. And then it rolls back down into the box when it's done. Um, yeah. You know, and that way it doesn't, you don't have to give up, you know, your living room space for a big screen. It just, it, it's there when you need it and goes away when you don't want it. Right. Um, you know, and I, yeah, I think you're right. That could be done in a, in a tablet format, right? You just have to have something, some sort of rigid right. back against it that it, because, you know, nobody wants to tap on a piece of paper. You've got to have something anyway, behind it that makes it yeah. rigid. Anyway, I, I think they'll continue to work on it, but that concept has more promise to me than the, this business of just flat folding it over. I, yeah, I think fold is the wrong, the wrong approach. Right. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that there's there's um, much like when we first saw them starting to create laptops, and there was a debate, and none of the computers that we looked at had the trackball. Remember, for a long time, laptops, uh, well, a long time, but there was a good chunk of time, a couple of years, where right. before they had touchpads, there was a trackball there in front of the keys, and you could use a trackball, and that was the preferred yeah. way of moving things around. Um, and there's still some people who, instead of using a mouse, you use a trackball. They feel like it's better for their wrists because people get um, repetitive stress issues. And, uh you know, and so they're trying to figure out what's the right technology with these these flexible screens. You know, what's the right way to implement that technology? Um, and you know, it, it remains to be seen. Even if that is the right technology, over time we may just say, "Well, yeah, we can do it," but there's nobody wants it, right? Yeah. Well, I I think that uh, we're. Uh, I don't know how well Elon Musk's investment is going, but you know, he's looking into connecting things to the brain so we can think a thought and, and make it happen. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm thrilled with that concept, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, again, just depends on how it's implemented. I'm glad somebody's exploring the technology, you know, but you know, like with the, with the rollable screens or the full flexible screens to me, uh, it, the idea of like, I think it's a better implementation for something like a television than it is for something portable, you know, mm-hmm. unfurling something portable, that rolls out. I guess if you're going to hold it as a reading device, like reading a newspaper used to be for those who used to buy newspapers, not many people do anymore. It kind of makes sense that way. I mean, it's like e-paper, right? But, um, but that remains to be seen if there's really an application for that, you know, is there, is there an application for justice, just a reading device? You know, I guess the Apple Kindle or rather the Apple Kindle, the Amazon Kindle says, yes, 
you know, they sell lots and lots of the original Kindles, not the not their Fire tablets. I mean, they sell lots of those too because they're really cheap. But the original, you know, e-ink Kindles, a lot of people like reading on those, and that's their preferred reading device. Well, and, and the other one that that may have promise, and I until we try one, I'll, we'll never know, and that is glasses. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, all uh, of that, all of that may be supplanted at some point in glasses, and we'll find ourselves doing like uh, Tom Cruise did in that movie. We'll be like gesturing in the air in front of our glasses instead of. Instead of typing, you know, instead of looking down and tapping on a little piece of glass in our from our pocket, right? Yeah. Well, I'm kind of intrigued by that. Uh, the fact that we're they're saying a couple of years away, I guess, from from uh, Apple glasses. Yeah. They've they've been at it a long time. Yeah, uh, yeah. They they've been working at it. I think part of it is is you know, they probably have concepts of how they want it to work. The question is. A, is the technology there, and B, is it something we can produce at volume? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, we can make it in the lab, and it's pretty cool in the lab, but can we make oh, yeah. can we make 100 million of these things, <laughs> you know? You yeah. know, and that, that's the question, right? Because Apple's got to think in those terms. It's not just can we do it, but can we do it at volume? Because, you know, even a small, you know, it, people talk, it's funny because, you know, I think people still tend to think of like the, the Apple watch as a small number compared to like the phone and stuff. And I guess compared to the phone, it is. But as we pointed out not too long ago, it's the number one selling watch in the world of every kind of watch. It outsells them yeah. all. You know, we're talking Timex and Swatch and everything, every Swiss watch. It outsells them all. It's the number one watch <laughs> in the world. Um, and, and it's, and it's kind of a side business for Apple, you know? Yeah. I mean, it really is yeah. astounding how successful that device has been. Um, you know, so anyway, we've got a couple other things that we got in our docket here. One was, uh, Apple's Mac mini has a, is at a low price right now. Um, I suspect that that's partially in anticipation of, um, some upgraded minis, although I think they're going to continue to sell this mini, um, you know, there's rumors that in March there's going to be an Apple uh, event, and one of the things rumored to be there is um, replacements for the Intel Mini because they're still selling an Intel Mini at the high end, and um, yeah. and so the expectation is is that the Mini is going to get the same chips that are in the um, the MacBook Pros, and so then now, now the thing about the M1 uh, low price there is that that's uh, not really with very much memory at all. That's everything is small. Right. And this is you the, really the, need practically. You, you need more than that. So when I read the article, there's one at 750 that gives you 512k computer, which you know sort of minimally adequate in my yeah, mind. Yeah. 512 gigabyte. The gigabytes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had a flashback uh, to, to to not even megabytes, but to K. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that's talking about the storage. It has 512 gigabytes of storage. And you're right, that's minimal. See, what they what if you go to the Apple website, and you look at the mini right now, there's two um, configurations that are the base configurations, it's eight gigabyte of memory and 256 gigabyte of storage, or eight gigabyte of memory and 12 uh, and 512 gigabyte of storage. And uh, this has those two prepackaged ones, basically, Marked down. The problem is, is if those don't work for you, the only way to get more 
is to go to Apple because then you have to get a custom built one that that has more, and they'll sell it with up to with 16 gigabytes of memory, which is the max on memory, and up to two terabytes of storage. But then it's never discounted. So if you need something other than this base configuration, that's uh, right. You know, and quite frankly, I, it's a little disappointing for me because I think that like the the five twelve gigabyte one with eight gigabyte of memory might work if they would put sixteen gigabyte of memory in it. But the only way to get more memory is to custom order it, and that means you have to go to Apple, and then you're never getting it on sale. Yeah, you know, which is probably the way the part of the reason they they priced it that way and structured it that way, right? It's like we know of, these two are, are are minimal, and you can buy the minimal ones from Best Buy and Amazon and other places. But we know they're minimal. If you really want, and if you want any upgrade at all, you have to go to Apple, and they don't they don't give you any discounts. So that's right. So which is a little frustrating. But uh, but anyway, that can get your heart pounding when you say five seventy. Oh, that's almost affordable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the reason I bought the first mini that I bought was because I, I bought you know basically just the 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 stock mini as it came, and I think at the time it was four ninety nine. Maybe it was three ninety nine. Yeah. It was when they first came out with the mini. The idea was is that that would be your baby step into the Mac world, and they were trying to tell PC people, "Hey, try one of these. You've already got a keyboard and a mouse and a monitor. Just plug in what you've got, and plug in this, and unplug your PC, right?" And this was the first one that um, uh, the fact the first mini was even a a mini that still had the Power PC chip in it. It wasn't even an Intel mini. Uh, right. And I had one of those and uh, and it was really cheap and it, that's what it was designed for. But what they've learned over time is that the people who are buying minis aren't those people so much anymore. Most people, if they want to buy a Mac and they're going to try the Mac world, they go to a MacBook Air or an iMac. And so yep. the mini, what they found it's really used for is as servers. And so they've restructured it and repriced it. And if you don't need a lot of, yep. you know, if it's a server, you probably don't need a ton of storage. And if you do, it may be external to the device anyway because it's sitting in a server rack. And so, you know, the the little um, uh, 256 gigabyte version, if it's, you know, if you're using the mini to run some some software, say like I'm using my uh, little Raspberry Pi to do it, that mini is great. Except that it's 570 bucks. My Raspberry Pi cost me, you know, 50 bucks. so depends depends on the on the processor right if you need if you need something that's going to have some some computing power in your server the uh the raspberry pi might not be the right answer but i'll tell you what i could buy a lot of raspberry pis and spread a lot of work across a lot of different computers for 570 bucks Um, yep so i don't know anyway uh i i threw one other thing in here uh called liquid text which is we're talking software now yeah uh, and uh the i only want to bring it up because uh <clears throat> there's all these awards uh editor's choice apple most uh, innovative mm-hmm. time best apps for ipad pro mashable 10 best ipad uh, uh, ipad apps and finally apple uh, amazing apps for iPad Pro, uh-huh. so lots of awards. Right, and then when you look at it, uh, it does. It really is the kind of thing that a reviewer. It depends if you do that kind of stuff or you make notes on various uh-huh. stuff. 
Yeah, you if you do, if you together, if you're reviewing or researching or or possibly studying, you know, like yeah. if you're writing a paper or something for school, this could be a good tool. Let me read Liquid Text's um, one paragraph description. Liquid Text offers a fast, natural way to review, gather, organize, and, and organize information across all your documents and web pages, and then apply the results to reports, to writing reports, meeting prep, or simply studying. Pull out key facts and connect them together. Squeeze a document to compare sections. Draw a line to connect ideas in different documents. Comment on multiple pages at once. Build upon your thoughts and much more. So it's like a way to okay. to gather your research together and 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 then gather your thoughts about that. I guess. Yeah. One the 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 big uh, negative about this is it requires a Liquid Text Live subscription, and I have no idea what that price is. Uh, Liquid Text Pro is thirty bucks uh, for students. Nineteen ninety five. Live yearly is is ninety five dollars. Uh, so it's available you know, on Mac OS and on uh, iOS or iPad, iPad OS. So it's Mac or iPad. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, you got to take that into account if what you do is worth spending that kind of money, this is probably a real good device because it yeah. comes highly recommended by lots of people. They do have a student price. If you can show that you're a student, uh, Liquid Text Live yearly is forty seven ninety nine. Um, but when you but when you read about all that it does and the and the examples of uh, of uh, how it works, uh, it uh, it seems very capable of uh, more so than just trying to put your own system together. Uh, although I have thought about how uh, uh, using the, well, the macros is not the right word, uh, shortcuts that you, you can, you can uh, have uh, assemble stuff all together. Well, maybe shortcuts isn't the right word either. Uh, what am I thinking of? Um, a way to to automatically bring all the apps that you want to apply together to your screen and and manage your your screen management system. There was a name somewhere, an article that I read that that allows you to do a lot of what Liquid Text does, but you've got to do it yourself. Hmm. You know, it's not turnkey, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I see this, I, 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 they've got, if you go to their website, it's liquidtext.net, um, they've got some videos, and I think you really need to watch those to get a feel for, you know, I mean, they describe it, but to get a feel for how it works and how you can combine things together to, to collect your thoughts and your ideas, that's really what it seems to me is sort of a collect your thoughts type of app, you know, so. Right. If you're doing any kind of, of uh, research or gathering of information from multiple places, this is a way to kind of bring it all together in one place and then make connections between things so that you can think about how you want to structure then your document based on this information. Um, and yeah. so they give you lots of tools for doing that kind of thing. And it looks like it's it's an interesting um, idea in that it's I, I don't know of anybody or any other software that's doing anything like this. Um, you know, doesn't mean that there isn't alternatives. There might be some other software out there that does things like this, but I just don't. I'm not aware of it. But um, yeah, well, yeah. it's it's attractive because it's integration, and that's a word that's dear to my heart. Is that what 
integrated solutions generally just work better than those that you try to make work, but they really, they don't, the, uh, they, they're not as easy to use. Right. And, you know, and if, and if your business requires that you do these various kinds of, of tasks, it's, it's just pulls it all together for you. Right. And the one thing we haven't said yet is the compatibility this product has with multiple other products like Dropbox, iCloud, uh, PDF files, uh, worksheets, uh, Word and PowerPoint. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you you just name it. It's a whole bunch of other documents that uh, you can use to create the individual parts Mm -hmm. of a product. But then you can use all of that stuff together. Uh, yeah. To get get your work done uh, yeah. in this product. Yeah. Well, Apple Notes allows you to integrate a lot of those kinds of things. You can embed things within Notes, and Preview within the operating system allows you to open files from just about everything. So there's some, some functionality built into the operating system there on a Mac. Um, I'm looking at the Liquid Text website, and you can uh, download the thing for a... Um, a, a for free and try it so you can play with it there at least for the mac um Mm -hmm. so they do have the liquid text client this is a local app available for ipads mac os and windows the basic version is free um, and the pro version is thirty dollars paid once um and uh so the thirty dollars gives you basically everything you want um that you're talking about i think and then live allows you to share projects between devices. Um, so if you if you go bounce back and forth between the Mac and the iPad, you can you can share it back and forth. But if you don't need to do that, if you're just using your laptop or you're just using your iPad, um, you can pay a one-time $30 fee and it'll work for well, you. Well, see, that, that's, that's a bit misleading then because it says requires Liquid Text Live subscription which is recurring, and I don't see that in the pricing there. Okay. Are you looking at their website? Oh, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, – uh, th- this is basically the apps download page. Right. Yes, yeah, so you're looking at, at Apple's apps page. I just sent you yeah. a link to their actual website page that's fee- uh, pricing and features, and there they, they have two co- – two columns and under each column they have two more columns and one is the liquid text client they have a basic and a pro and then they have liquid text live and they have live and enhanced and you can pay monthly Uh, or annually and they break down the features you get under each of those i see live okay yeah so if you buy the pie for for the live version you get one one regular reoccurring price for all versions on all os's yeah. Um, and you can store up to a gigabyte in their cloud, and you can have up to 10 devices with different OSs, and they sync automatically between the different devices. And so, you know, I mean, if if you move back and forth between multiple devices, that makes total sense. Um, and they don't have it now, but the Live Enhanced will also allow collaboration. So, like, if you're working on a project with multiple people, they can also, you know, you can share your project with somebody and they can add to and subtract to and mm-hmm. edit it and stuff like that. But that's not built in yet. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it for free, you get active reading, note-taking, mind map, mapping app, uh, a an award-winning gestural interface, unified workspace, 
excerpts for anything, link documents, excerpts to notes, pinch and search and highlighted view, export notes to standard formats. That's for free. And mm. then for $30 one-time fee, you get all of that stuff plus uh, inking right anywhere, um, multi-document projects, connect anything to anything, link across documents, link content to distant parts of documents together for simultaneous views, and tagging up to 10 devices on one OS. So if you've got one OS, you know, you can have up to 10 devices. So if you, you know, if iOS, I assume, yeah. you know, that would work with the iPad and the I, and maybe a phone as well. Um, and then if you want to go to the, to live, then you get the gigabyte of on, you know, cloud storage, multiple devices sure. and, and syncing between the device, uh, the, the, the real time syncing between yeah. your devices, things like that. So, so yeah, it just depends on how you work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, thank you, Todd. That that makes it a lot clearer. It's yeah. it's both uh, a basic pay system, but then for right for live features, uh, then then you pay right for uh, monthly basis. Right. Yeah, and by the way, we talk about iPadOS and macOS. It's also available on Windows. It'll run on Windows 10 or 11. So um, so for the Windows world out there, you can get it on both sides. So, you know, I mean, that sounds like pretty, and, and I think the free one would be interesting to look at. I'll probably download the free client, the basic client, and, and play with it a little bit and see how it works and then decide if I want to, um, you know, maybe get the, the pro. I don't know that I have enough use for the live side of it. But, you know, I'm one of those people who I like to research things. I do a lot of reading about stuff. You know, it helps me make decisions. And so I'm a, re I'm a yeah. just by nature, I'm a researcher slash curious learner, right? And so um, this kind of tool could be really handy for that kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, um, you know so, uh, but their pricing, you know, if it's, it's, if it's twenty nine ninety nine well, for the pro version, that means that I would have to buy it. You know, if I wanted it on my Mac, I would have to spend 30 bucks for the Mac. If I wanted it on my iPad, I'd spend 30 bucks for my iPad. But I wouldn't be able to sync between the two unless I pay the ongoing fee. And I don't know if I, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of subscriptions. I understand and I want to support developers and they need to have money coming in so they can continue to make their products better. Totally support that. Mm -hmm. And if it's something I use, I'll subscribe to it. You know, if it's something yeah. I use and, and appreciate. But by the same token, I just feel like I'm being nitpicked to death, henpicked to death by little subscriptions here and there, you know. Oh, it's only five bucks. Oh, it's only seven bucks. Only, you know, yeah. you sit down, and you look at it and you go like. Holy moly, I'm spending 150 bucks every month for all these little things, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah. do I need them all? You need to go through and, like, weed them out and say, well, how long has it been since I've actually used that yeah. app? One of the things that kind of stuck out to me is they put in here mind mapping. Typically, that means outlining. Um, uh, generally, what that means in the world today is more of uh, flowcharting than outlining. Flowchart. Yeah. So if you look yeah. at their picture, it kind of looks like flowcharts. You'll have like uh, things on a page and you draw lines and connections between them in order to create relationships. So it's more of a flow, uh -huh. flow charting type of thing than outlining. Now, very often flowcharts have an outliner, you know, it's just a different view of the flowchart. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just a matter of looking at it. So it might be outlining built into it too, but that's something that we could, you know, with, you could download the free, the free, basic yeah. version and yeah. and you'll find the base you'll learn enough about the interface with the free version to be able to de decide whether or not it's something that's going to work yeah, I, for you i i wouldn't have put this up here if i wasn't planning to download that yeah 
Yeah. You know? Well, looking at, at how it works and, and what it does, I think I'll download it too, and we can maybe talk about it next week and see what we both thought after we've played with it a little bit because it's, it's certainly mm-hmm. interesting enough to look at that. So so last thing up was um, – uh, well, it was two things. Did we? Oh, we know we started. We already talked about the reset on the AirPods. So, last thing up is a serious warning issued for a billion Apple iPhone users. And uh, I haven't even read this, but you know they're saying that there's now a billion plus iPhone users out there in the world. And apparently, the biggest hack in iPhone history is now public knowledge, with reports of horrific attacks made on individuals. That's the headline. Oh my gosh. So, what is it really? <laughs> Um, so a company called uh, Quadream has been hacking iPhones for more than five years, granting access to users' microphones, cameras, front and back, and monitoring calls in real time. Reuters says that Quadream's flagship product called Rain um, uh, is is out there and that they would sell their hacks to the highest bidder. Rain could take remote control of any iPhone without the user's knowledge. It would then access emails, photos, text, contacts, and instant messages. Again, I've always said to anybody, don't put anything on your phone you wouldn't be willing to share with your family because uh, that's a bad choice. They're not secure. <laughs> Even iPhones, which 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 try to emphasize security, yeah. are not secure devices. Um, and then they talk a little bit about Pegasus. Both NSO and Quadream are believed to have employed similar hacking methods uh, with zero-click hacks, which means they work without the users needing to click a URL, usually sent via an unsolicited SMS or email, something users are... In- increasingly being educated about uh, and, but there's no way to avoid attack right I mean if, if somebody sends you a, a, an SMS message it just pops into your phone and if if the act of showing up in your phone then uh, oh, hacks your phone then we've got problems and so uh, uh, basically they're just saying that this is very similar to the Pegasus app that has been in the news that Apple has um, tried to block the most recent 14.8 uh, version of iOS blocked uh, the Pegasus thing, but they're saying that uh, uh, Apple has declined to comment on Quadream's uh, Rain hack. So we don't know if that's been plugged or not, or what they're what they've learned, or what's going on with that. It's just another another well, hack. I will say to most people, this is the kind of thing that's done to target people, and unless you are a person who might be targeted, the average schmo. Nobody's going to spend a lot of money buying this stuff to hack into your phone to find pictures of, you know, uh, you and your, your dog. Um, but but if you work in a sensitive industry and and possibly could be the target of somebody trying to hack into your devices and, and your communications, then you want to be aware of this stuff. Yeah. And if you're if you're a manager in that kind of industry, you have to take, take this article and you clip it and send it to your, all your your workers and saying, look, what? Mm-hmm. What's happening out well, there, guys? I don't, I don't want our name in the news, right? Well, I don't know the. I don't know that you would send it to your workers because there's nothing they can do about it. All that would happen is they would get a text from somebody they've never heard of, and their phone is hacked. I suspect that yeah. you would talk to your IT people and start saying, "Okay, you know, how severe is this, and is this an issue?" And and you know, yeah, you know, you might send a reminder out to everybody saying, you know, only use approved communication methods for secure conversations, right? And, and don't send texts back sure. and forth to each that's, other. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. No, you're it's absolutely training. right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's exactly what it'd be. Go back to training because anybody who works in a secure industry, there are certain methodologies that you're allowed to use to communicate to each other when you're talking about projects that are secure as opposed to, you know, 
calling somebody up on your phone or shooting them a text or an email for heaven's sake. Well, um, well you know. uh, when I, when I clipped this thing to send it to you, I, I, uh, basically wanted to, uh, uh, bring up the fact that even though historically Apple has had a really good record and a lot of us get kind of arrogant about it, especially around PC folks, uh, uh, Apple is just as good an attack now as it used to be with, with, uh, Microsoft stuff. And, uh, but Apple has always been more prepared to, to deal with a lot of it. But doesn't mean it's not going to happen, though, before they have to deal with it. Yeah. Especially yeah. if somebody uh, doesn't report it to them, you know. Yeah. They're well, and I mean, it's, 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 it's defensive by nature, right? They're always chasing holes that yeah. other people find. And so they're doing their best to plug the holes as quickly as they can, you know. And you understand why they don't want to talk publicly about it and tell people about it and create create panic they just you know quickly and quietly push out updates that's why updates come out every few months if not every month you know uh and very often people go oh there's no new features in this one that's a security update it's bug fixes it's it's well you know important i'm just hoping uh, that the i'm just hoping the security updates don't get so to be so frequent and so intrusive that that's a, that's all you get done on the device. Yeah. That's why I I came to Apple in the first place is that I got fed up with the oh the Windows the updates were terrible. Yeah, on I'll Windows, tell you I'll good. tell you though that if you turn on automatic updates on your phone, it will do the update overnight while you sleep. And when you wake up in the morning and you go to use your Face ID or your Touch ID, it'll say you need to yeah. log in with your your PIN code. That's probably because it did an update overnight. Yeah, it's it's certainly less intrusive than it used yeah. to be. Yeah. So, but but you know, a lot of people, you know, when you use your phone in the morning, the first thing you do is you look at it and it unlocks, or you you put your finger on the touchpad and it unlocks. But sometimes when you do that, it says, "Oh, you need to log in," and you you go, "Why why do I have to log in? Why is that? What happened?" Well, it's because your phone rebooted overnight because it upgraded its software and it rebooted, and the default is automatic updates. And I would tell yeah. most people leave the automatic updates on. You know. And then you don't have to worry about it. Your phone will just, your device will stay updated. And and it also means that when the update comes out on like a Monday, you won't get updated on Monday. It'll take maybe, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday before your device updates, which is fine. That's also a good thing because sometimes the update causes problems that were unanticipated. You don't necessarily want to be on the bleeding edge of updates. Even if they're a good update that you should be getting, you might want to just hold off and make sure that it's not causing problems. You know, in my family, I have everybody on automatic updates, but then I always update the first day that it's available. And I tell them, you know, after after I've used it a day, I'll tell them, okay, if you haven't, force the update now or just wait and it'll update. But if there's a problem, and every once in a while, it's rare, but every once in a while, Apple's put out something and then gone, ooh, this is not great. And they'll even pull the update. They've done that. And I will tell my family, don't update. You know, go turn off automatic updates real quick. <laughs> don't let your phone update right now till till they fix this. And usually that's done, you know, fixed within 24 48 hours something like that. I mean, Apple seems to be pretty responsive in that world. Um, yep. and much less intrusive than 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 Windows. I I can't tell you how many times Windows in the middle, you know, it's happened in the middle of like you're sitting down to do some work and it just says, "Okay, we're rebooting now and there's nothing you can do. You can't stop it." It's like, "Nope, it's rebooting." Sorry. And <laughs> and it's going to take you know, and then when it reboots, it's it's installing stuff, and it's not just a reboot and comes back up. I mean, it's a twenty minute stop. It's like, well, 
you know, yep. okay, it's, it's uh, you know, 8.30 in the morning. Guess I'm going to take lunch because <laughs> I can't do anything. My, com- <laughs> my computer's decided to do its own thing. Um, and that's so incredibly frustrating, you know, to, to just take you out of the loop. And Apple just doesn't work that way. So. Yep. Well, I think we've pretty much covered the the water. We right. have. We talked through it all. We talked through it all. Everything to be talked about has been talked about. So we thank you for joining us today on Generation Tech and appreciate your support. If you like what you're listening to, please give us a good score on your uh, Apple Podcast app and or whatever you're listening. And you can also get us on Spotify. If you happen to be a Spotify subscriber, where our podcast is available on Spotify as well. Um, and if you like what you're listening to here, we do have other podcasts in the Shack Outback Network. We have Two for Brew and Two Minute Tech. Check them out. See what you think. We appreciate that. Have a good day. Thanks. See you, Dad. Okay. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Are you there? I am here. Okay. That's good. So what's up this morning? What do you mean what's up this morning? Everything's up. Everything's up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess we'll uh, chat for a while, huh? That's the plane. What? I said, that's the plan. Okay. Mm. Uh, I've been throwing some stuff online, and I duped one of them uh, because I couldn't remember whether I had it. I went up to look, and, you know, it uh, it didn't show it. There was something else got in the way, I guess. So I said, said okay, I'll uh-huh. be sure I got it. So I dumped it again. Yeah. <laughs> now I see it there. Let me open those up. I'm not hearing very well. Oh, wouldn't you know. Before we start, let me get a battery change going. Yep. It always dies just about this time. Especially when it's the day for talking to you. Doesn't want me to hear you, I guess. (laughs) Okay, back online again. Okay, I'm just opening up the articles. 
so I'll have them here. Let me see here. Get the messages up. I didn't know that there was a reset feature for AirPods. That's why I put that one in there. Yeah, that's no, special. that's um, news to me too. Or if it, I haven't read it all the way through, but it's it doesn't ring a bell. It might be one that if I go look look at it, I go, yeah, okay, I knew it. I'd read about that before, but I don't, I don't know, doesn't doesn't ring a bell. Well, the first step, you know, was easy. I mean, you got this from your phone, disconnect it. But then the other one is to how you put it in your case for. 50 and shut, shut the case and stuff mm -hmm. um, wasn't I wasn't aware of it you know I didn't know know exactly what that meant reset it <laughs> when they refused to cooperate I'm not just sure what that means either yeah uh, I think that's probably mostly like they're not connecting right or something or some i've had i've heard people having issues where like one connects but not the other one or or um you know whichever one you take out of the case first connects and then the other one doesn't connect like they don't pair to each other somehow and so this well mine's always that way i i just happen to take the left one out first so i hear it connect but the other one, as soon as I put it in my ear, it's working with the system. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's that the, but, but there are some people who, when they put the second one in, it it doesn't attach properly somehow. So you know it because they don't activate till you take them out of the case, right? And so I guess they want I guess they want to hear a clicking sound to confirm that second one's going, huh? But but is all you got to do is send some sound from your iPhone over, and both of them come through. So. Anyway, that's. I don't think there's any clicking sound involved. I think they just have to do a, a a Bluetooth handshake to verify that they're you know both out and in the ear, and there's a sensor in each one so that it knows whether it's in an ear or not. Well, or, or well my take my, my take on it is when it comes to hooking to the phone, it, the phone only talks to one, and the other one talks to it. Oh, that's so, what I yeah I agree. I think that's so, what happens. So the sound that you hear when the first one stuck in your ear is, I don't know who, whether the phone makes it or the iPod makes it, but yeah, it that makes little, a clip. That little Not chime. A, clip, but a, a little chime. That chime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's good to know if something does really get screwed up that you can go find the thing. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get this rolling here. Welcome to Generation Tech, the show where we talk about tech uh, across two generations. I'm Todd Brinker. I'm joined, as always, by my dad, Jack Brinker. How are you today? I'm doing fine, Todd. Good to hear your voice. Likewise. Likewise. So uh, last time uh, we were talking, you guys were, were kind of dealing with the, the remnants of, a, of an ice storm on that coast and now the ice storm seems to be sort of the middle of the country <laughs> and uh yeah it sort of shot up on the west side of us this time yeah and made a mess made a mess of new england but uh we didn't get much of it yeah not, yeah here not it's that I wanted it. southern california <laughs> has gotten warm we got up into the 80s yesterday and expected to do that throughout this week so um we'll see how it uh how it goes but you know, we had been in the in the high 60s to low 70s up until uh, yesterday, I think, and 
and so now it's gotten a little toasty here. So I should yeah. say toasty. I mean, it's not like summer weather. You know, we're in a desert where you know summer weather is a hundred plus. But uh, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, after having what we call winter, <laughs> the rest of the rest of the country would say, "Oh, you 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 had a you know somewhat average autumn day," and that's the dead of winter for us. So the joys of Southern yeah. California. 